The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast by Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists speak with various luminaries, interesting people, executives, folks from the world of finance, economics, politics. My name is Pete Sweeney. I'm sitting here in Hong Kong, and I'm chatting with Dexter Roberts, author of the recent book, uh, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, which I read and reviewed and you can read on our website. Let's talk about the, uh, let's talk about the book for a second. Where did you get the idea for the book and this title? Um, and if you can talk the listeners through a little bit about, about what's in it. So the book, the origins of the book go way back. As, as I mentioned, I was in China for, I guess it was about a little over 23 years. And uh, I, I arrived in China in 95. Uh, in the year 2000, was, uh, I did a couple of cover stories for Business Week where I worked that really had a big impact on me in terms of, of uh, appreciating and understanding China a little bit better. And one of those stories was, I think it was called uh, China's Wealth Gap. And I was looking at the, the then very uh, important to the Chinese government national policy, Develop the West. And they were trying to, uh, as you know, trying to uh, overcome the very large regional inequalities that they were dealing with uh, that had been part of the, uh, of, of, of the Deng uh, Reform Revolution. And the other cover was, uh, was called The Great Migration. And that was on the migrant workers of China. For, that, uh, for both those cover stories, I went to, uh, to Guangdong, to Dongguan in particular, to the factory town that probably best represents the China's factory to the world model. And also I went into a very remote part of Guizhou. Guizhou itself is already pretty remote and quite poor and uh, visited these migrant workers that I had just met in Dongguan actually at their jobs in the factories. So that was, uh, that was the first time I met the, the Mo's who I actually profile in my book. And uh, that was also the genesis of, of this decision to focus my reporting and my, and my book on these two places. Uh, the, uh, the remote town where the, where the migrant workers come from, in this case in Quezhou, and the factory town where they spend most of their lives, most of their working lives, uh, Dongguan. Yeah, I mean, it was a fascinating book. And, and what was really interesting you know, if we can go through the history of it a little bit, I mean, like the, the decision-making that led China to first, you know, let some regions develop faster than others, you know, and then try and equal them out. Uh, Chinese policy has been really interesting here, right? I mean, so, for example, mm -hmm. the, the hukou system, this internal migration system that China kind of like telling American China has like its internal Mexico, right? It's very kind of two-tiered structure. You know, but the beginning, it was kind of, it was part of reform, right? That, that we're going we're gonna to dedicate assets to part of the country. We can't help everybody at once. You know, the first part is going to lift itself up and we'll get around to the rest later. Yeah, I mean, and we have, of course, Deng Xiaoping, uh, depending on how you translate it, his famous comment about some must, let some get rich first, which was exactly that policy. And then, and then a hoped for almost trickle down policy of the wealth uh, then spreading throughout the country. But I mean, you, you were talking a little bit about, I mean, they, they did begin realizing it was pretty obvious that like, you know, Shanghai at this point, Beijing is so, so far ahead of, you know, places in Guizhou. 
um, you know, these, the, the gap in wealth and property prices, infrastructure, everything. Um, but I mean, the government, the government did realize this, right? As you mentioned, the go West policy or, or the Western development strategy, you know, was supposed to lift this up. How do you score yes. their success? I mean, it, from the book, it seemed like you didn't, I, I couldn't quite tell whether on balance, you think that they're, they're heading in the right direction or, or whether they're just kind of giving, giving up and leaving, leaving those people behind. Well, I think undeniably, uh, starting with Develop the West and continuing until today, there's been tremendous progress in uh, building out infrastructure throughout the Western and the interior of China. And you can see that, of course, uh, on, you know, on the expressways, you can see it on the rail, including high-speed train. Uh, and you all can got see good it cellular in, coverage. <laughs> Sorry. Good, <laughs> cellular, good cellular coverage, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and so, so that's been a, a dramatic improvement, if you will, um, and, and certainly has a real benefit on the lives and the business and the ability of people in those parts of China to make a living. Uh, but what the argument I make in my book, you mentioned the HUCO, the household registration policy. And the argument that I make in my book is that, yes, it's important to build out this infrastructure. Uh, it does help. It has lifted, uh, helped lift uh, living standards and incomes in the interior of China. However, uh, it's just one piece of it. And equally important, if not more important, I would say more important, is actually doing away with this legacy policy, the household registration policy, which is very much a legacy of the old era. It dates from the, I mean, some people look, trace it back to uh, centuries in China, but it's clear that uh, where it really started to take, uh, have a real impact was in the 50s when Mao borrowed it from, from Stalin's Soviet Union, actually. And uh, at that point, uh, the goal seemed to be having a relatively pliable rural labor force that would produce low cost food for industrialization in the cities. Um, and uh, unfortunately, as Deng Xiaoping reformed, began the reforms in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, this policy was not ended. People were allowed to travel as we know and work in different cities, but their ability to settle long time in uh, the places that they worked was severely hampered by the household registration or the hukou policy. One thing that I think people notice in China compared to like some other developing economies is that the urbanization process did not produce massive urban slums. Do you think that's a valid defense of the policy at first that they, they felt that like we've got you know hundreds of millions of peasants and we can't just let them all move to the cities at once no i think i think that is a big motivating uh uh is, is a big motivator on the side of the chinese government this idea that they you know they 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 they, they had a phrase that they started to use uh i believe during the great famines during the great leap forward uh, right. at that point migrants actually started to ignore the uh, hukou policy and just, you know, basically run to the cities because they didn't have enough food to eat. And they called it a uh, blind flow in Chinese, in you know, the English translation. And uh, it was seen as this very bad thing. These, uh, and it was a bad thing because, uh, I mean, the, the, great, the great leap forward is happening. So, uh, but, but I think there is this perception amongst the leadership that somehow they need to control the flow of people. And we see it even now with the various efforts to do piecemeal reform of the hukou policy. Uh, back in 2013, they announced with great fanfare at 
one of the third plenums that they were going to move rapidly to reform the Hukou policy and also the dual land policy, which is the other plank of, of, uh, of, of the system that basically in effect keeps half the population as second class citizens, which we can talk about later. And so they announced back in 2013, they were going to move forward with reform. They announced, I think two days ago as well, an, a new initiative to try to push reform of both Hukou and the dual land policy. But what we've seen uh, instead is piecemeal reforms, very little since 2000, very little progress since 2013. And this decided bent on, by the leadership to try to guide it from above. So in other words, migrants don't go to the city that they, that they, that, you know, they don't go to the city because there's jobs there and they wanna be there. For example, Beijing is, has, and Shanghai have been basically uh, branded off limits. Up to now, what's been the economic cost of this? So I, I, I believe that China right now is in the process of trying to, of, of undergoing one of its biggest economic transitions in decades. And, and what, you know, the, what is the, what are they moving away from there? The, the, this old model of factory to the world. And uh, if the last two years of the trade war, uh, which obviously put a dent in Chinese exports, didn't focus the minds of the policymakers, I'm sure COVID-19 is doing it right now. And there's, so, so they have been saying for quite a while and before, before even the last, before COVID-19 and the trade war, that the old model uh, is no longer sustainable. Uh, obviously, uh, worker wages have gone way up, manufacturing worker wages. They're now higher than Mexico or Malaysia. We've obviously seen a lot of the lower end manufacturing move out of China, whether it be to Southeast Asia or India or elsewhere. And, and there's also the issue of uh, excessive pollution, uh, you know, excessive use of energy. All these things uh, have been the costs of the, what had been a very successful model uh, for the last few decades, this factory to the world model. Uh, another, another big cost, of course, is, is the heavy reliance on debt, you know, which according to most estimates is now topped 300% of GDP. So people are worried about that. So the, the government has been saying for a while now that they need to move to a much more service-driven economy. They do want to continue to have manufacturing, but they want it to be much more automated and they want to be producing more higher-end goods. But, but as you know, another huge uh, part of their, uh, economic, their planned economic transition is to move towards a much more uh, domestic consumption driven economy. And so the argument I make in my book is that they're never going to, they're not gonna make it there as long as close to half the population is treated in this way. And you know, treated as second class citizens through both the hukou and also through the land system, which makes it very difficult for them to monetize the rural land that they, that they hold. And so, I mean, that, that the system, I think it's, I, I make the argument, and I think it's a persuasive one that, that some, of these, some of these challenges they have, I mean, one is trying to, to grow uh, private consumption or household consumption, which is still you know, stubbornly below 40%. That compares to a global average of around 60%, and is also significantly lower than other de developing countries as well. It also explains you know, the flip side of that coin, which are the very high savings rates. Uh, I think personal savings, the personal savings rate now in China is around 23%, and that's 15 percentage points higher than the global average. And a lot, uh, so the argument again in my book is don't expect them to step up and start spending money as long as they need to, you know, as long as they, their, their position remains precarious 
and they feel therefore a need to make to put savings away for either their children's education the private schools that they, that they put them in in the cities are despite being low quality it costs money costs a lot more than public school which doesn't cost anything which they can't put their kids into uh, they need to be ready uh, for medical emergencies often also turning to private clinics in some many cases where they where their insurance won't cover them uh, same thing with retirement so so anyway I, I would say the system did work well and it is to a degree underpinned the this this underpinned the uh, the uh, factory to the world model that 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 powered this double digit annual annual double digit growth we've seen for decades now but i don't think it's going to work going forward and i think actually the leadership realizes that well so how much pressure i mean this is kind of this unprecedented moment where we have china facing uh, an actual recession the first recession since since 76 i believe which was the tail end of the cultural revolution. You know, the pandemic has obviously hit the migrant workers who are, have more difficulty tapping you know, medical services where they are. And then, you know, this economic turndown is going to hit the export sector, which is a big employer, um, suppressing like the consumption economy as well. How big, and, and we've, we, we can see signs of, you know, unrest here and there, um, you know, with worker protests, people not getting paid, you know, the boss running off with the money and, and just kind of shuttering the factory or whatever. We saw all that. 2008, 2009. How much pressure are you seeing forming now um, at this kind of blue collar level of society? Well, I, 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 I'm quite worried about it. I mean, we've seen the cities in China return to something, I wouldn't call it normalcy, but they're, you know, they, the order went out to restart the economy and it's really happened in the cities to a large degree. Uh, if you're a, uh, uh, a typical urbanite, you might be a white collar worker and uh, you either go in some, as some of my friends do to the office once or twice a week, but you mainly work from home still and they'll be going back to the office more and more going forward. Uh, so in the cities, we've seen, you know, we've seen the restaurants reopen to a degree and uh, the people are back flooding into the parks and walking around. I don't think that's at all what, what's happening in the countryside. And actually there's a, a very interesting new survey out by uh, Scott Rizal, the, the the expert on rural China at Stanford, uh, through his his little cent his center there, the Rural Education Action Program, and uh, uh, they just did a, they just finished a survey on what's happening in the villages. And on the encouraging side, uh, it seems as if uh, the shutdowns, which also happened in the villages, uh, suppressed the spread of COVID nineteen. Doesn't look like there are huge problems there, according to his survey. But uh, the economic cost has been dramatic. And just some of the figures, just some of the numbers that came out of this survey, I think it was released just three days ago, 92% of the people they interviewed in the village said that you know, the disease control measures had reduced their income levels. Uh, uh, virtually no one is working in the off-farm sector. So as you know, a lot of these people uh, would get a job, you know, doing the, being a delivery person, doing the same sort of jobs they might do in the big city, but do it at the township level next right. to the village that they hail from. And that's completely stopped uh, as of now. Uh, I, the, interestingly as well, it's not just income. 79% uh, said that it, it had a very negative impact on their children's education. Uh, over 60% believed that it'd become, or stated that it'd become much more difficult to get medical care that was not uh, COVID-19 related. So we're seeing this happen already. Uh, longer term, uh, 
uh, I, I am I am quite worried. I mean, there's already reports of mass uh, bankruptcies of small enterprises across the country. Um, there's reports of uh, migrants basically find, discovering that they can't go back to their place of work. First of all, you know, the, the company, whether or not the company is operating, if they're lucky enough that it, that it still is an operation, they're discovering that they can't move back into their apartments because they're literally being pushed out in some cases. Yeah, and this is like, just, just for listeners, I mean, the migrant labor force is going to be really key to restarting production, right? I mean, this is like 40% of the I mean, is that is that statistic right? I've seen I haven't I've seen various numbers I think around it, I that like forty percent like, like that. I, yes. So so if they can't get there, um, then you can't restart the factory because your workers can't get there. I found it interesting that state media has actually been kind of focused, like Xinhua has just been pumping all these efforts that uh, governments are making to get migrant workers back to their factories. Whenever you have state media like kind of warning that sort of thing or patting itself on the back, it usually means it's because it's a problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. I think uh, they're, they are key to restarting the economy. So I think I have real worries about uh, what we're going to see in the next months, uh, uh, next few months unfold in the domestic economy. Uh, on the international side, it goes without saying, uh, you know, look what's happening in the rest of the world. They're not going to be buying Chinese goods. There's going to be a tremendous uh, hit to the Chinese export uh, industry uh, in the months ahead as well. Do you expect them to kind of get it at this point? To like really, that this to be a catalyst for, for finally opening up these, these restrictions on blue collar workers or will this cause increased rigidity or defensiveness? Well, I think just in the last few days, there was a high level announcement that they wanted to move forward more rapidly with HUCO reform and also land system reform. And I sure hope that, uh, that, it, that it really happens this time and that they implement it. Uh, as I mentioned, the track record is not particularly good. Uh, back in 2013, they put forth this elaborate plan, uh, you know, this, the document that, that they issued at the end of the third plenum on reform. I can't remember how many pages it was, but it was very, very substantial. And they went into great detail about both why they needed to reform the HUCO system for these reasons we just spoke about, boosting domestic consumption, and also, the, similarly, why they needed uh, same thing with the rural land system, and and also how they wasn't really too detailed on the path ahead, but but some steps about how they plan to do it, and they, as I said earlier, have made very limited progress. Uh, I'm not surprised that 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 they that they move slowly. I think it's a mistake, but it's, it is really difficult. Uh, my concern uh, right now is that the latest announcement is gonna run into some of the same challenges we've seen for many years now, certainly going back to 2013. And what, well, you know, what are those challenges? I mean, one big, big issue is convincing the city governments that they have a responsibility um, to actually spend, the, you know, to spend whatever the cost might be to try to integrate migrant workers in, into the, the education and, and, the, and the healthcare and the overall social welfare programs in the, in the cities. And the perception uh, is that the cost of that will be very high. Uh, there are some Chinese officials that actually argue, no, uh, the migrants are hardworking. If we could get them to pay taxes, they might pay for uh, some, of their social, some of the social welfare costs because they're, they're, they're hardworking people and they will quickly do their best to integrate into the, 
local populations. They're not going to come there and not work. Uh, but, but most cities, I would say, it's fair to say, fear that the cost of this will be very high. Uh, another, yeah, well, that another, sounds just like the states, right? I mean, in the United, like Southern, the Southern, I mean, that's the big anti-immigrant concern everywhere is that like, oh, yes. it's going to overload our public, oh, public schools, it's going to overload our healthcare systems. I mean, so that's, yeah, that's very, fairly... very interesting, very interesting parallels. And the other thing that, <laughs> that we see here in the U.S., which is very, very real in China, is pushback from the people in the cities themselves. So, you know, there's been some of the larger protests that we've seen by city dwellers with urban hukou or urban household registration in recent years have been against uh, well-meaning efforts by the central government or by the provincial governments to try to bring more migrant children into the school systems, yeah, particularly when they've tried to uh, reform the, the Gaokao or the national test for kids to get into the, the local universities basically take away the special advantage that's given to the locals, uh, the locals who live in that city, which is, which is quite a substantial uh, advantage that's given to them and, 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 uh, and, uh, and it makes it much more difficult for people from the rest of China to get into the schools. When they've actually tried to do those reforms, there have been uh, the parents of, of uh, kids in, with, with, <laughs> with Urban Huko actually going and marching outside the ministries of education and saying, no, don't let more kids into the school system. So there's a real, there's a real uh, pushback uh, that I think will continue to be there from the, from the actual urban residents themselves, who already, to, get, to be fair to them, already face a real struggle to get access to good health care and education. I mean, right. the, 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 you know, the, the challenges of getting your kid into one of the better schools in a city like Beijing or Shanghai, as you know, is, are substantial. They put a huge amount of effort and money into trying to get them into good public schools, uh, sometimes by buying apartment, you know, these ridiculously priced rundown hovel of apartments that might be near the school simply because that will allow them to get their kids in. So anyway, I think that's a big issue as well. And then just to finish the, what you mentioned earlier, I think there is a real fear uh, about social stability uh, and this idea that if we loosen up the hukou too much, we will have, uh, uh, this blind flow of migrants pouring into the cities and potentially issues like like the slums that other countries around the world have seen. Dexter, I really want to thank you for talking with us. And I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. By all means, subscribe to us on iTunes, on Spotify, on the podcast software of your choice. Um, check out our website, breakingviews.com, where we have articles on Dexter's book and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and tune in next time. And I also need to thank our production team. I'd be Sharon Lamb and Freddie Joyner for putting this together. And thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>